Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Oliver celebrated its 20th birthday this year, so to mark the occasion, we're re-releasing 20 of our favorite podcast episodes over the next month. Listen again to some old favorites or discover hidden gems you might have missed as we dive deep into the back catalogue. And don't forget there are more than 400 podcast episodes in the archive. Just head to olivemagazine.com to find out more. In this episode, we welcome food writer, author and journalist Felicity Cloak. For her new book, Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, A British Breakfast Odyssey, she travelled the length and breadth of the UK by bike, exploring what makes this meal so important to us as a nation discovering regional breakfast specialities and finding out what makes the perfect fry-up. Delighted to welcome back Felicity Cloak to the podcast. Felicity is a food, drink and travel journalist who writes regular columns for the New Statesman and The Guardian and is the author of six books. Her latest out now is Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, A British Breakfast Odyssey, for which she travelled the length and breadth of the UK by bike and train, exploring what makes this meal so important to us as a nation, discovering regional breakfast specialities and finding out what makes the perfect fry-up. Welcome, Felicity. Hi, very nice to be back. Thank you for chatting to us today. So this book is a kind of a follow on to your last book, One More Croissant for the Road, in which you travelled France in search of classic French regional dishes. Um, what gave you the idea to explore breakfast as a as a subject? I wanted, I wanted to tackle the UK just because I think that it sounds stupid to call it an undiscovered gem because obviously... I live here, but it's somewhere that even though I had, you know, travelled, I thought, quite widely, I'd never really thought about tackling as a whole. And I felt like it was somewhere that, you know, you tend to visit, you know, maybe you go down to Cornwall for a holiday or you go, you know, up to um, Liverpool to see family or whatever. So you're always going somewhere. You're not really exploring, you know, 
the country as you're going. You've got a destination. And I wanted to see it in a different light. And I thought, what what is Britain really famous for? What the British Isles really famous for? And I was thinking, could it be fish and chips? Could I eat my way around the coast of fish and chips? Quite a tempting idea. And then I was like, no, it's got to be baking. You know, we're really great, uh, you know, famous worldwide for our baking. And then I just thought, but I think the most iconic thing, even more than the Sunday roast, is breakfast. That is the the thing we're known for, just because it's so unusual. I don't think he, maybe the Americans, you know, they have those big breakfasts, but it's not quite the same. It's not a sort of real cultural icon yeah. in the same way as the fry up. And I think that some of our near neighbours think we're a bit crazy for this breakfast. <laughs> and I just, one thing that I liked about it was that it's one of the things that draws us all together as a country, because you don't have to be, you know, a really foodie person. You don't have to be a cook. You don't have someone mm. that goes out to restaurants a lot to have an opinion on breakfast. Opinion. That's mm. a big thing, isn't it? Because yeah. I think that's, a, I think you mentioned like the fry police in your book who I've had on the podcast before, Tom, who's hilarious. And, and he just said, I couldn't believe how many people really had a very very strong opinions about it it's honestly it's like it's i would compare it to football or <laughs> politics maybe even more so than politics like people yeah. really feel well informed about breakfast and they feel like qualified to give an opinion which is great because everyone's on a sure thing with breakfast everyone mm. you know has been eating it you know, at home or, uh, you know, in pubs or whatever, their whole lives basically. And so you can be an expert without that much outlay. And I love it. I just love the fact that, you know, from like Stornoway down to St. Austell, everyone will have an opinion on what belongs on a fry up. Yeah. And then a bit of cycling in between to um, to burn off. <laughs> bit of cycling, yeah. Well, again, what I discovered when I did the French book was that it's just a really brilliant way to see a country yeah. because it's, you know, you can make significant progress. You'd be surprised. For example, there was one day where we went from Plymouth right down to Falmouth. So from Devon right down to almost the tip of Cornwall in a day. Mm. So you can really cover some ground, but it's slow enough that you can see things changing. You can stop if you notice something interesting along the way. Yeah. You can make a little detour to a bakery or something. So you're really exploring um, and you get to chat to people in a way that you wouldn't do what you know wouldn't in a car yeah so I just love the fact that you become part of the environment and I love the fact that you feel you can eat a bit more when you stop yeah. than you maybe you could <laughs> if you were driving so we're going to go through your 10 things you need to know about breakfast to start on with the inspiration for the book's title the big question red sauce or brown sauce why did you choose that for a title just because I thought that was the perfect way to sum up this <laughs> really um really divisive subject and as I said although we're all united in this country as to the importance of breakfast that is the only thing that we agree on basically people will argue about everything from you know baked beans to what shape a sausage should be and I think the principal argument is what sauce should you have on it like people feel very very strongly about whether it's you know red or brown sauce or another sauce entirely and there used to be this um Radio 5, um, 5 Live uh, game called, uh, also called Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, I think. Um, no, it's called the bake- uh, Sausage sausage Sandwich Game. Yeah, Sorry, I yeah, Danny my, Baker. Yeah, my, my husband goes on about that Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm not a 5 Live yeah. listener, I'd not heard of it. And then my friend Gemma, who features in the book, big sports fan, she was like, did you know about the Sausage Sandwich Game? And I was like, no, but this is perfect. And Danny Baker basically used to ask a guest, you know, usually a sports person, um, he used to ask them loads of questions and one of them was um, 
what they wanted on a, on their sausage sandwich and callers would have to guess based on what they knew about this guest which one they would go for and people it wasn't a random guess people would think oh he's from the north so he'll be, probably be a brown sauce person or you know she's she's uh she's quite young maybe she'll go for ketchup and people would really give explanations as to justify their choice and i thought that was great it's just, it's a really tribal thing um and yet it's really really silly and you, i love you've that you've got st- statistics haven't you for what because you said like you're more likely to prefer brown sauce if you're male older or from the north so i'm two of those the older and from the north bits <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the people them doing statistically looking at, at what people preferred yeah um i think that ketchup does seem to be seen as a bit more of a southern or sometimes a bit more of a middle class thing um, brown sauce is definitely more associated with the Midlands and the North. Um, yeah. And I think Scotland probably falls into that. And I don't yeah. know if you've ever had um, chippy sauce in Edinburgh yes, on the East it, Coast, which is <laughs> very vinegary indeed. I love, well, that's what I like because I think, again, because I'm Northern, I think we we definitely err towards kind of vinegary things. So because mm. I was saying to you, like, I, I I love HP, but we used to have daddy's sauce when I was growing up, which is even more strong and vinegary. Yeah. And I think there's definitely kind of a Northern vinegar thing there I don't know what it is yeah. but yeah chippy sauce is like brown sauce let down with vinegar that yeah. you can squirt all of your chips isn't yeah it? I mean it is great it's great um <laughs> so I thought that was interesting but when I've asked also I've been doing a few events already for the book and so I always ask the audience what mm. they'll go for and I sort of thought that I would be able to guess based on where we were. So in the British Library in central London, I was thinking, I think this is a ketchup crowd. You know, we're in the south. It's probably quite middle class making assumptions. Mm. Very brown sauce. Whereas down in um, Dulwich in uh, southwest London, they were very, very ketchup. <laughs> and I don't know what that says about wealthy Dulwich, but that no. was interesting. And then in Moulton in Yorkshire, I spoke to a few people when I did an event there recently. And they were very much yeah. brown sauce. Yeah. Although one woman told mm. me that she had peanut butter on her bacon sandwiches. I've which, had that before. It's nice. Yeah, it's well, I'm going to try it, works, it now it because I was a bit sceptical. And then I was peanut like, Peanut butter no. and chilli sauce. It's really <laughs> Hey, nice. there we like are. Like a satay vibe. So it kind of works. I'm into that. Yeah. I mean, I like marmalade on mine, yeah. so... I'm very open-minded. And you like mustard on your fry-up. Oh, yes. <laughs> English mustard. It has to be English. I think yeah. people think, they think of, I'm talking about Dijon mustard, yeah. and they go, oh, right, like the kind of people that like mayonnaise with their chips, like I'm a little bit pretentious. <laughs> no, it has to be really strong English mustard, yeah. like the kind that you make yourself and it will make your eyes water. It's kind of waking you up, isn't it? Exactly. And it's not like, it's not, I find ketchup very sweet. And actually brown sauce is quite sweet as well. Mm. I don't really want that in the mornings. I want something that is literally going to, I can feel it in my ears and that's mustard. (laughs) I love it. Let's go on to number two. And and you say um, until the 17th century breakfast didn't really exist as a meal. And the full English is a 20th century invention. I'm surprised by that because I thought it'd been around for a while. Yeah, so I was really, really um, surprised by both of these facts Mm. and fascinated Actually, in most of, certainly most of Europe, breakfast wasn't, um, it wasn't approved of apparently by the church to eat first thing in the morning for some reason before you'd said your prayers. And also I suppose that mealtimes were just very different. So most people would have their main meal of the day Mm. about 11 o'clock in the morning. And that was a big meal. And before that, like maybe you would snatch a sort of crust of stale bread or something, but most people apparently wouldn't. And they would just keep on, keep on working and then have this big meal. Um, and then when breakfast did become a thing in kind of, I think the 17th century onwards, it wasn't this sort of eggs and bacon fest. Like almost anything 
was eaten. If you look at, say, Pepys's diary from the 17th century or like Jane Austen's letters from the 18th century, it's all, it's everything from um, pheasant pie to chocolate. You know, there's all sorts of different things. And there was no, they weren't all tucking into bacon and eggs. They would have mm. been eaten, but they weren't any more of a breakfast food than anything else, right. which I found interesting just because lots of cultures around the world don't have particular breakfast food. I was talking to some guys um, from the Wing Yip um Chinese supermarket chain and they were saying there aren't there isn't such a thing as breakfast food in China mm. like it, we would just eat whatever we would in the rest of the day but smaller amounts yeah which I found fascinating um and then the fry up like people were eating elements of the fry up by the 19th century and certainly this idea of the huge English breakfast did become a um, a talking point for visitors from abroad who are always amazed at our appetites at breakfast time, <laughs> which makes you quite proud. Um, but it wasn't, you know, the way we see it today with people arguing about the different things on yeah, the plate, the elements, it wasn't that. Yeah. It could be like anything from kidneys to macaroni cheese to like a lot of fish in the diet. I've got a yeah. book of, I think it's called 100 Breakfast or something like that. And it's, you know, breakfast. No, I think maybe it's a breakfast for every week of the year, different breakfast. And it's fascinating, you know, the, the the variety of things that were thought appropriate to mm. eat at breakfast time. And you don't actually find mention of the term, you know, the full English breakfast until the 1930s. And it doesn't seem to have become a, the thing that we think of as today until after the Second World War. Mm. So it's really interesting. It's a bit like the ploughman's lunch or the, um, the cream tea that we think of as a really old traditional thing, but actually isn't. It's... Do you think it sort of came up with... The idea of like cafes as well, like mm. not cafes, but you know, the, the kind of greasy calf. Yeah, thing. I think eating out a lot more. Yeah. Um, and also maybe people having a little bit more disposable income because yeah. in the, after the war, people couldn't, there weren't really that many places to eat out yeah. and people didn't have the money to do it. And suddenly in the 60s, I mean, I'm relying on my dad here, but people did have a little bit more to splash out and maybe they were, you know, women weren't, were working more outside the homes so they weren't cooking up you know an egg or bacon in the morning mm. so they go to a cafe who would all you know offer a little bit more than your wife might offer you yeah um so i mean in that sense anyway um <laughs> <laughs> so i think it has to do with a lot of different factors but mm. I'd, I'd really like to find out more about this yeah. i'd like to write the first really scholarly book about the fry up yeah one of the most important elements on a fry up is obviously the eggs whether they're scrambled or fried or poached no Never pushed eggs no, in fry it, please. Don't do it. Um, but you say for number three that large and extra large eggs aren't very fair on the hen. I've been hearing this a lot recently. So t tell us about that because I think it's something that people should know about. I, yeah, people are always amazed, as yeah. I was when I think I only found it out last year. Yeah. And since then, I felt this pang of guilt because I think in some of my previous recipes, I've said, you know, I always use large eggs. Yeah. And now I'm very much a medium egg. Or I just buy those mixed size boxes mixed of eggs weight, because they're actually cheaper. they're cheaper. And yeah. also it doesn't, unless you're Heston Blumenthal or someone doing really precision baking exactly. and weighing your eggs, doesn't make that much difference. Yeah. And particularly not if you're putting it on a fry up, you know. Um, but um, apparently these, unsurprisingly, these very large eggs are actually quite painful for the hens to lay. But because of consumer demand, mm. um, 
chicken farmers uh, encouraging them yeah. to lay them with special supplements and things but it's not it doesn't mm-hmm. seem very fair on a poor no. old hen and especially when as i said it makes literally no difference to the consumer so yeah, yeah avoid those large and extra large eggs people and if we buy mixed weight it, it makes it kinder on the farmers because then they can actually yeah. sell them they don't exactly have, they don't have to produce like standards they can just say mixed box yeah of eggs because and... there will naturally be some large eggs yep. sorry hens yep. just like there are large babies but you know we don't <laughs> we don't need to create a market for them yeah so as part of your odyssey, you went to Yorkshire and um, the home of Yorkshire Tea and and met uh, the people who made it. And you say Yorkshire Tea is actually grown in 20 different countries. They do a really nice sourcing job. You go into it in the book quite heavily about, you know, where they buy their tea from. But none of that tea is actually grown in Yorkshire. I mean, I didn't think tea was grown here at all, but it is actually in Cornwall, isn't it? And Trigo- I think Trigo- might- Trigo- yeah, so there, it's grown there. And I think I might have read that someone is growing yeah. tea in Scotland, yeah. which seems so unlikely. But, you know, I suppose if you get a really good sunny site, then yeah. maybe. So tell us about Yorkshire tea then. So it made me laugh. So I went to go and meet the guys. So Yorkshire tea is a brand of tailors of Harrogate mm. who are a sister company of Betty's, Betty's who people might know have this chain of tea rooms in Yorkshire that are just if you go do order the buttered pikelets they're <laughs> incredible but we went to tea at, went to breakfast at their cafe in Harrogate and they were telling me just about the way that they source and they were saying that um, some people are genuinely surprised that the tea isn't grown in Yorkshire and they <laughs> feel a little bit they feel a little bit yeah. ripped off because they're thinking that this is some yeah. proud Yorkshire tea and it is you know it's all blended yeah. in Yorkshire and they you know, they do all of that but no it's all it comes from you know various parts of Asia and Africa um, that are better suited to tea growing. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. I, what I found interesting was she was explaining to me, um, the tea buyer, she was explaining to me how you can match different teas with different breakfasts. Mm. So, for example, an English breakfast or my preference, like a Scottish breakfast or an Irish breakfast blend, because those two tend to be a bit more full bodied than yeah, the English breakfast one. They have yeah, more yeah. of Sam in them, which is just maltier and thicker. And mm. so, you know, if you go to Ireland or you have Barry's tea or something, it's quite orange. That's what I like in my tea. Okay. <laughs> um, that's like got a lot of tannins and it. it's good for like a greasy fry up. Yeah. Whereas if you're someone that, you know, starts the day with some sort of, um, you know, avocado bowl or whatever. Or, you want a more gentle Yeah, tea. you want, so she was saying like a fresh flush Darjeeling. Or, and it's so interesting yeah. because tea is such an integral part of a lot of our breakfasts. But we don't tend to be that discriminating against about it. No. Where we are about coffee. People can be real coffee snobs. So and yet. True you know, go, oh, I'll just have, you know, your builder's tea or whatever. Yeah. And I find that weird because actually to me, I'm much more fussy about my tea than I am coffee. Yeah. I'd love to be fussy about coffee, but quite often I can't t- can't taste the difference, but yeah. tea. 
I know, and I'm quite happy to spend three fifty on a flat white, mm. but the idea of spending three fifty on a cup of tea—I know, like, so yeah, it just seems outrageous, it. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. But yes, I yeah. Um, so I just found that really interesting, the fact that it's the the anchor of our breakfast, and yeah. we all feel quite strongly about it. You know, people people will talk, chat for hours online about their, their preferred like mm. shade of tea. They will, yeah. And yet they often d- aren't really talking about the tea that's going into it. They're talking about how they like it, how many that's sugars, strong, how much milk, etc. Yeah. I think it is just like a, a method of getting your fried yeah. down sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I have to stress that I like all tea. I've yeah. never had, <clears throat> apart from that styrofoam cup of tea that you sometimes get on the train, they're not good. I can tell you which tea you don't like. Well, uh, when you go to um, abroad. America or abroad <laughs> and you get Lipton's tea because it's just that's terrible isn't it the like yellow dust. label tea yeah, yeah that yeah. is shocking that should be banned from sale yeah it shouldn't be called tea yeah it be. and it's never the water is never boiling either no. which is not you know so that's not helping the Lipton's cause I have to say it's not their fault but yeah I, I generally only drink tea when I'm in Britain yeah. or Ireland because you know you're going to get a proper cup of tea. Abroad, I go for coffee. Let's talk about some regional specialities, starting with Welsh lava bread, which you say has nothing at all to do with bread. Some people might know that, some people might not. Tell us about what what it actually is. Um, It's actually seaweed. So it's a seaweed puree, which doesn't sound like the kind of thing that we associate with traditional British food. Mm. But actually, seaweed was eaten quite widely, particularly on the west coast of Britain, which is rockier and also on the west coast of Ireland, because um, it's very, very nutritious. Mm. It washes up on the beach, so it's available for free. Um, and there used to be a huge trade in, it's called lava in Wales. It's called sloke, I think, in Scotland. And I can't immediately remember the name in Ireland. Is it dulse, is it? Or is that different? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I think yeah. dulse is a little bit different. Is that like crisps? But that is an edible yeah. Yeah. seaweed as well. But I think it's yeah. a different variety, okay. I think. Um, but certainly, um, you know, dulse and carrageen are both uh, used a lot in Irish cooking. But this lava is like, um, it's actually the same stuff that is used to wrap sushi rolls. So it's oh, the same right. sort of species of seaweed. And But what they do in Wales particularly is that they take it, they gather it from the rocks and then they obviously give it a really good wash, get all the little grit and bits of shrimp and stuff off it and then they chop it and they boil it up for hours until it comes really soft and it's like um it's like a you know if you order like a sag bhaji in an indian restaurant yeah. it's like that lovely dark green, green sort of like, yeah, mushy texture, puree yeah. and then that served well the welsh so i went to talk to a lady called kate cockles although it's not her actual surname but because because <laughs> she, she works with cockles um down in Penclouth uh near swansea sort of just across the Gower I think from Swansea and she was um, saying that how they like to cook it is literally just dollop this um, seaweed Mm. puree into a pan with the bacon and fry it and eat it just like that but then I was also talking to a guy that ran a and b locally and he said, oh, the English find it quite hard to deal with like that. So we make it into little cakes with oats yeah, and cheese. I've had and, lava cakes. Yeah. yeah. And they're really nice. They but are yeah. really nice. And it's so nutritious. Yeah. It's actually very high in protein. It's when I started looking into nutrition, I thought so good we should you. be eating this stuff yeah. because it's freely available. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take up any land to grow. It's a traditional food, etc. cetera. Um, so yeah, it's it's odd that you don't. It's actually quite hard to find it on a Welsh breakfast in Wales, um, which is a shame. Yeah, because they used to serve cockles as well, didn't they, on the Welsh mm. breakfast? But again, that's a bit of a hard sell to people these days who are used to one thing. Yeah, and maybe it's just a generational thing where you kind of grow out of it, and you. I think just people are because breakfast is, you know, a very 
it's a homely meal even if we use you know a lot of people cook fry ups at yeah. home but some people would only just have them out but it still feels like a very familiar comforting yeah. nostalgic meal and so if you didn't grow up with things like shellfish on your breakfast mm. then it is necessarily going to feel a bit weird and people yeah. are a bit freaked out by that even if they're an adventurous eater later in the day they don't necessarily <laughs> yeah. want to challenge their palates first thing yeah and i get that but i just love the fact that you can have like shellfish and seaweed and bacon and mm. that is a million miles away from you know your classic fry up but it's still a british breakfast yeah amazing let's talk about another thing that you might not necessarily have grown up with on your breakfast which is um raisin studded fruit pudding which you say is one of the best parts of a scottish fry up i love this i was <laughs> i remember seeing it first in a um scottish supermarket so i've got a lot of family in scotland and I remember saying to my brother-in-law, what is this? Because it was a pack. It was like, I think it was called like a breakfast pack. And it had your black pudding, yeah. your white pudding, your little your lawn sausage, which is the square sausage mm. that is popular in Scotland. All of those things I could identify. And then there was something that looked like spotted dick. And I was like, what is this? And he said, oh, it's fruit pudding. Do you not have it down south? I was like, no. <laughs> and it is, it's... Um, it's sort of like cross between something like spotted dick and a white pudding. So it doesn't okay. contain meat generally, but it does contain suet and then like wow. oats or breadcrumbs or some sort of filler and then spices and some sort of dried fruit. And it is delicious. And what are you meant to do with it? Fry, you fry it. it. You fry it like you would. You fry it in your bacon pan and have it with your breakfast. It's really nice. I mean, I've never, I've, I, you know, <laughs> been near to Scotland in Newcastle. I've never, I've never come across that before. I have come across people talking about frying Christmas pudding and Christmas cake mm. the next day. Yeah. Um, Big fan and having of that. that. But, um, but no, I've never come across this. It's sort of, it does, it seems weird until you think. Mm. That a, a fruity flavour on the breakfast, like just look at either um, tomato ketchup or yeah. brown sauce. They've got that kind of sweet fruitiness. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that it is another sort of pudding. Mm. And actually, hog's pudding, which is a Cornish white pudding. Well, now it's seen as a Cornish white pudding, but it used to be made all over the south of England. Right. You'll quite often find recipes for that with currants in it up until the early 20th century. So it clearly wasn't oh, weird okay. once, so there's but like a now people it, yeah. are scared of it. <laughs> But give it a try, guys. Yeah. Maybe not with baked beans. I'd, I've never had it with like baked beans. But I think when I was reading in the book, and I, I I can't remember having hogs put in, you were saying it's kind of sausagey, so it's in the it's in the sausage family. So why is it scary? I mean I think well, I mean the name I think is maybe a bit off. Yeah, maybe pudding. it's just it's the name, like yeah. yeah, well it's like when Americans call black pudding blood sausage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just not that attractive, yeah, is it, as yeah. a um as an idea. But it's mad if you've got like again, we grew up with black pudding on breakfast. That's that's really normal to me. Like that's just mm. standard. I love that. And it really makes mm. a difference to have a black pudding on. But if you've not experienced it, it can be quite challenging, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I think it's just knowing Obviously, some people are squeamish about blood in any form yeah. and thinking about it, even if it doesn't taste or look anything no. like blood. I get that some people do find that a bit freaky, but they are just sausages. They yeah. are just different bits of, um, you know, either a pig or a cow usually put in a casing. And it, the only difference is that they've mm. been pre-cooked as opposed to you cooking them. I mean, yeah. you heat them up to crisp them up, ideally, yeah. but they've just been boiled so they're already cooked. Yeah. But that's the only difference. They're just a different sort of sausage. Yeah, it was interesting because you you interviewed a couple of guys who were um, black pudding producers and and sad what they were saying about, you know, how difficult it is to actually, because they wanted to use 
like um, fresh blood. You can get, re- you can really readily get dried blood to, and then rehydrate it and produce black pudding. But they wanted to try and make something that was a slight cut above, but they had to like jump through loads of hoops to to even do that. Yeah, that amazed me because I've never met a black pudding that I didn't like. And I didn't realise that as far as they're aware and as far as I can tell, they're the only people making black pudding commercially in the UK from fresh blood. Yeah. Everyone else uses dried blood these days just because there's so much regulation around the transport yeah. and use of fresh blood that it's just easier and it cuts down the variables yeah. and etc. And it's not that those puddings aren't great because I've eaten enough of them to say they're very enjoyable. Mm. But when you have one with fresh blood, it's just a different thing. It's got a real creaminess to it. Mm. It's just, it's really rich and delicious. And it's a bit more like if anyone's had French boudin noir, it tends to, it's got that creamy richness to it that you don't get in some other dry blood black puddings. But seeking out, what, what, can you remember what? It's called fruit pigs and they make it in, um, uh, Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire and um, they actually had to go and slaughter the pigs themselves to take the blood off the um, off the line yeah. so that is how they have they got round it but they had to qualify as slaughtermen to go and do that and that is real commitment like that is seeing the oh, yeah. whole business through and it's not a tiny operation no. like they sell their black pudding in my local butchers in London so you know they're a proper but in the same business. way, rather than that blood being wasted, mm. they get to use well, the whole said, bit know, of the pig. So it's like no, proper nose to tail. You yeah, because so, so much blood gets wasted in this country. And I think I'm right in saying that almost all the dried blood comes from the continent. Wow. Which it would be fine if there weren't a lot of blood being yeah. <laughs> wasted here. Yeah. But it just seems I mean, it really sounds sad. grisly, but it is just really being responsible for like what yeah. you're doing. Well, I think if you're going to eat pork, then you should think about eating all of it rather than wasting you know not just going oh I just want the chops yeah true (laughs) another thing that we might be familiar with but but change quite a lot um bubble and squeak you said it was originally made with beef not potatoes I can't imagine that so what was it it was literally it was the same idea as in leftovers fried up okay but instead of the potatoes it tended to be leftover roast meat mostly beef which is a agreed a really weird idea because potatoes for me make the dish like you could leave the cabbage out and maybe put like spring onions to make it into more like champ or you could put like any leftover veg I would put in there I put you know if I had um some leftover squash or sweet potato or something I'd put them in there but Mm. you have to have something starchy starchy to soak everything up yeah yeah I mean so that surprises me but certainly if you're going to have it on a breakfast yeah I think you need potatoes because that's you know that's your carb yeah there but I love it on a breakfast and you just don't see it that much in cafes like I asked um on social media because I thought am I wrong that it's not really seen outside London and the southeast as a breakfast calf mm. thing and people are like we eat bubble and squeak and you know County Durham we eat it in Belfast and I'm like, yeah but do you ever have it on a breakfast and people are like oh maybe not so they make it themselves rather yeah, than go exactly, yeah. and see it on a it's, menu yeah, yeah and it's a leftovers thing and obviously you might have a tea with a fried egg or yeah. something but to go out to a cafe and see it on the menu along with your you know, your black pudding and your sausage and stuff, mm. I think does seem to be quite a southeastern thing, but I am such a huge fan. Yeah. So and much nicer than chips. Because you went, did they do it in the Regency where you went? That's they do. A, that's a famous fry up cup, yeah. isn't it? And I think there's an Instagram account called Cuffs, not Cafes. Yes, I love that. Yeah. yeah which is great. And he, oh, she, I don't, I don't know. If, it's I a think, guy. I yeah. think it's a guy. Um, he, 
he basically highlights all of these places where you can go and have, you know, a fry up, where you can go and have a cafe experience rather yeah. than a cafe experience. Yeah. And the, the sort of like slightly dying out old institutions, basically. But the Regency looks incredible when you go on their like account. It's complete. It's uncompromising. And you think because it's so it's the cafe that was used in... Um, uh, is it Layer Cake? Yeah, the that... film is a really unpleasant, violent episode in a cafe with a fry up <laughs> that people might recall. Um, I don't recommend you look it up if you haven't seen it. Um, but and so you think, and it's been used in fashion shoots and etc. Because it's such a classic yeah. sort of post-war calf. And so you think you're going to go in there and it's going to be full of people doing Instagram shoots, <laughs> but actually it's full of like cabbies reading the paper yeah, and <laughs> like it's a real. You're not allowed to sit down until you've ordered, and they just shout, you know, your order and etc. And it's got this massive urn of tea behind the counter, <laughs> and it's like proper, and yeah. it you know it closes at noon on Saturdays, and it's not. I just love it. It's unreconstructed, but also great. Yeah. And at the other end of the scale, we've got the famous McDonald's breakfast. Yes. And you had a little story about um, a woman who was a bit upset about <laughs> the cutoff time for her breakfast. This this made me laugh. So when I was looking, um, I, was, I think I was actually looking to see when McDonald's started serving their breakfast in yeah. this country because I don't remember them growing up. Not that my mum would have let me have one, but I don't remember them as a thing. Um and I came across this lovely nugget um, on Twitter of this police officer that's got a Twitter account saying that um, his force was called out by a woman that had rung 999 because by the time she got to the front of the drive-thru crew, uh, queue, they'd stopped serving breakfast and wouldn't give her her McMuffin. He said the woman was reminded of the importance of not wasting police time. But I just love that. I mean, I mean, maybe she was really hungover and she just she really expecting. needed... <laughs> yeah. that turn up she needed her McMuffin. Yeah, I mean, I know people are quite evangelical about the mcmuffin um i've only ever had them when i've been desperately hungover and they do fulfill that like carby fatty i wanted need. i wanted to hate them and um because i hadn't had one for years and years because i used to be quite freaked out especially on the lorries you see these eggs and mm. they look like sort of um hockey pucks or something yeah. and they just really they didn't make me feel Fancy, good so I, yeah. yeah so I, I hadn't had one amazingly and then I decided I needed to have one because they are one of the most popular breakfasts in this country as yeah. like, a single brand. Um, and so me and the dog and my friend Kai, who <laughs> has eaten apparently a few of these breakfasts, went down and had one. And I was fully prepared to go, oh, this is disgusting. Yeah. I loved it. I think the dog <laughs> basically got like a corner. <laughs> And like putting the hash brown in. Kai schooled me yeah. where I put hash brown in extra as well. It was great. Then I went home and looked at the calories and felt a bit less good about it. Yeah. But it you're was quite, enjoyable. You're quite down on a hash brown, so I'm surprised that you did the hash brown trick. I mean, if you're going for McDonald's, yeah. you've already... <laughs> you're already not a purist, are yeah, you? Yeah, but true. No, it's not that I don't like the hash brown. It's just that I don't want it on a breakfast because yeah. it's too crispy. Yeah. Which sounds weird, but you've got your crispy... I like my bacon quite crispy. Mm. And then you've maybe got like quite a crispy, crunchy black pudding and white pudding and like a fatty egg and etc. Yeah, there's enough I just on. want something soft and carby, like a bubble and squeak or a tatty scone or yeah. something, just to soak up all that grease. Yeah. So I'm not against them. <laughs> I just don't want them on my breakfast. <laughs> I love it. Let's talk about the other end of the scale, which is porridge, because you say that almost every culture in the world has its own take on porridge, which is true. Mm. Tell us about that. So... Um, Basically, porridge, it's a little bit like dumplings mm. in that they're such a simple, staple, cheap food mm. um, that you will find iterations of them everywhere. 
And although we think of porridge as a really specifically Scottish thing, actually as a kind of mush from the staple grain that was grown in whatever region, it used to be eaten basically as far south as the Midlands. So where oats basically grew better than wheat because it's wet and cold. And in the south, we would have eaten wheat porridge, which is called frumenty. Um, and then obviously in if you go to China, you have congee, which is rice porridge, mm. and polenta is basically a form of corn porridge, grits, etc. So whatever the staple grain is, people would used. have eaten that as yeah. a porridge. Um, but the Scots, a bit like haggis, which um, apparently was the first recipe for that actually was published in England. Um, it, the Scots have sort of taken it to their own and they do it so well. I mean, I love Scottish porridge. They take it seriously. There's no... Um, Bombs. I mean, there's the World Championships. The World Championships. Yeah. I went up to the Highlands, the home of the World Porridge Championships, and they gave me a very firm schooling in uh, how to make porridge. You have to put salt in it. You should really only make it with water. Yeah. yeah. It's, and you have it's a sp- hardcore. And, and you, yeah. you wouldn't use your, like, Quaker or your Scots no. porridge oats, the rolled ones. Yeah. You have to start off with proper, really... Proper oat groats. So where they haven't been steamed and rolled, they're literally just the grain of the oat, just chopped in different thicknesses. Wow. Which I really like anyway, because yeah. I think it tastes Texture. a bit more oaty and yeah. it makes you feel like you're doing something good. But, uh, yeah, I was... Um, I would love to enter the World Porridge Championships, but I don't think I would place. <laughs> and, and what's the, I mean, what is it how they prepare them? Like, I mean, do they end up being creamy at all? Or I think it's it a lot a of bit the... gruelly. <laughs> I'm like well, I think struggling. made badly, I yeah. think it can be gruelly. <laughs> but you get the creaminess because you release that from the oats. So it's right. all in a very so slow a stirring and cooking. And they gave me a spurtle, um, which I carried around the rest of the UK on my bike, um, like a special engraved spurtle yeah. for getting right into the edges of the porridge pan. <clears throat> so you need to, I bought a special pan for it when I got home, like a really small enamel pan, like quite deep. So you can put it on a really low heat on nice. a heat diffuser yeah. and just cook it really slowly. Um and yeah, I always do mine with salt, but then because I am, I'm afraid English, then I do quite often put a little moat of milk and then some golden oh, syrup need, on top. Yeah, I think you need a little bit of that, don't you? <laughs> that's amazing. And not hardcore enough. <laughs> I think that's all we've got time for, but that is so brilliant. Such a good little tour around Britain and the various breakfast things. And your book, um, I think I'm up to page 200 and um five and you've already had a few accidents and visited a few museums we didn't get to talk about the bean museum i was going to talk about it but Uh, it sounds i mean i would i'd urge people to just go and buy the book it's fantastic and it's called um red sauce brown sauce a british breakfast odyssey and it's out on um by the time this podcast comes out it would have been out a week so good luck with the book and thanks again for coming to chat to us felicity thank you Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.